episode 24, Flying Monkeys. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a March 14, 2006 podcast from the Kansas State Historical Society. In this bi-weekly podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Was the Cowardly Lion a presidential candidate? Did the ruby red slippers reference the silver standard? What the heck is going on with L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz? In the first half of this podcast, museum director Bob Keckeisen uses a set of Lions Club pins to crack the code of this potential populist manifesto. In the second half, we'll give you more listener feedback and reveal the long-awaited connection between the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and William Allen White. But first, flying monkeys. Good afternoon, Bob Keckeisen, director of the Kansas Museum of History. Good afternoon, Merle. And uh, today uh, we're going to talk about some Wizard of Oz pins, which are uh, small pins, about a half inch tall, enameled. They depict uh, a couple of Wizard of Oz characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have seven of these in the collection, and they were created for uh, the Lions Club, which is an international organization uh, worldwide. It was founded uh, in 1917, and the Lions Club basically is a service organization, and they promote youth programs, uh, diabetes education, disaster relief, or, you know, like a lot of civic organizations into bettering the community, and they, they are particularly interested in youth projects. And every year, the clubs create their own pins based on a theme that members feel represent their state. And obviously, the Wizard of Oz is closely associated with Kansas. Indeed. And the pins, are, they get traded with other club members at state and national meetings. And back in 1983, the Kansas Lions clubs chose the Wizard of Oz for their theme. And so each pin has a different character character from the story. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got seven. We have the Wizard of Oz himself, uh, the Tin Woodsman, the Scarecrow, the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, Dorothy and Toto. That's one pin. Gotta get Toto. Together. Gotta get Toto in there. Um, the Cowardly Lion and the Tornado. Now, I'm not really sure that Tornado is an actual character, but they, they do have a pin for the Tornado. Uh, and if you see these on our Cool Things page on our website, uh, you'll see little numbers at the bottom of the pins, like 17-KE and 17-SW. Those uh, correspond to the different Lions clubs around the state. Mm. They, they Were they using the pins to like trade back and forth? Yeah, they use these at, uh, I think, uh, they use them at both state and national conventions. I think this one was used at the national convention. And I would imagine, although I, I don't know this for sure, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway, um, that <laughs> you know, they're for. probably a pretty hot item because Wizard of Oz is still very popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many people associate it with the state. And I know as Kansans, you've probably experienced this anytime we travel out of state. That's what people ask about. You know, mm -hmm. how's Toto? How's Dorothy? You know, that's, that's one of the things you can almost guarantee people are going to know about Kansas is the Wizard of Oz. Um, well, the pins and the characters are based on uh, the children's book, The Wonderful okay. Wizard of Oz. And there's a whole series to follow that book. Um, they were written, The first one uh, was published in 1900. But the angle we want to look at today is uh, many sort of claim that uh, the book is actually a populist allegory. What is populism? Well, populism was a national reform movement that was associated mainly with farmers. Um, 
Kansas played a really significant role in the creation of what's called, sometimes referred to as the Populist Party or the People's Party. And it basically was a political movement designed to represent the little guy, farmers, uh, against big business. Uh, they wanted government to eliminate economic inequity, what they saw as economic inequity in the country. Well, who was the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz? Who was he, and do you think he was really writing a political uh, manifesto in the form of a children's book? Well, there's people that think he was, but well, we'll start with Baum himself. Uh, he, as you mentioned earlier, wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz in 1900. Uh, Baum was born in New York in 1856, and he was always interested in writing and printing as a child. In fact, I uh, uh, read something that he had his own little printing press as a, as a child. He, he came from a rather wealthy family, and... He was not a real active kid. He was you know, a little scholarly, a little bookish, and mm-hmm. he wrote his own neighborhood newsletter and wow. liked to print things that's, like that. And That's normal. Yeah, was a, was a writer and a reporter as a child. Uh, he was also really into theater as a young man. So into his teens and 20s, he got interested in theater, which really kind of is significant later because uh, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz um, was a Broadway play and was a, was seen on the stage you know, um, years before it was made into a movie. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, um, in 1880, uh, so he would have been 24 at that point, uh, he marries and moves to South Dakota, and he ran a dry goods store and published a newspaper, took over the Aberdeen, South Dakota paper. And in 1891, he moved to Chicago, where he edited magazines that were devoted to window displays in stores. But the whole time, he's writing and uh, publishing children's uh, stories and books, and he'd written a number of them before he really hit it big with The Wonderful Wizard of Oz in 1900. Um, whether it's a populist um, allegory or a political manifesto, you know, that's kind of up in the air. The first reference to that really didn't come out until about 1964. There was an article in the American Quarterly by a gentleman named Henry Littlefield, and he wrote an article called The Wizard of Oz. A parable on populism, mm-hmm. and he was uh, Littlefield was a high school teacher. He claimed that there were all these parallels between the story and populism; that different characters stood for different things. Now, Baum himself never claimed to have a political agenda in the book, and whenever he was asked whether his stories had a hidden meaning, he always replies that they were written to please children and to generate an income for his family. But you know, if he did indeed have a political message in the book, you could argue that you know a lot of people use children's literature uh, to convey bigger stories, uh, moral lessons, and and the like. So there's often allegory in children's stories. So it wouldn't surprise me that people have read this into it. But Baum himself never claimed that that was the fact. But. Mm-hmm. Well, if it is a political manifesto. Okay. Um, uh, this book that Baum wrote, how does populism manifest in the book itself? Well. If you go with that assumption, uh, some of the things that, again, this is uh, Henry Littlefield's uh, article in the American Quarterly, um, he says, look at the characters and some of the situations. The Wicked Witch of the East represented Eastern industrialists and bankers who were controlling the little people, and the little people, obviously, the munchkins. So you got the munchkins as the people, the Wicked Witch of the East, and this is the East. You know, this is the woman that, in the movie, the house falls on and kills, Mm -hmm. Uh, not the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, She comes later. But So the East is Eastern industrialists and bankers. Uh, The Cowardly Lion is William Jennings Bryan, populist presidential candidate in 1896. Uh, Kind of a lot of bluster and roar, but no real power. the Yellow Brick Road would be a real obvious reference to the gold standard. Uh, populists wanted 
uh, a bimetallurgic um, approach to the uh, economy. They didn't want paper money just based on gold. They wanted silver brought into it as well. Silver then is represented by Dorothy's silver slippers, and that's interesting because almost everybody you talk to that knows The Wizard of Oz more from the 1939 MGM Judy Garland movie sees them as ruby slippers, mm -hmm. but in the book they are silver slippers. Um, the story of I've always heard is they change them to ruby because it's in Technicolor, it's just a brighter, you know, right. uh, uh, easier to notice. It's a uh, better color for the for the camera than silver. I've but yeah, a, in in the book, they're silver slippers. I think uh, ruby would be more comfortable than silver. Well, yeah, and then, I don't you know, know. Classy, silver you know, conflicts yeah, with uh, you. Well, you know, she's got that blue gingham dress. You know, yeah. just, you know, red sets it off. And then the wizard himself is could be almost any Gilded Age president: uh, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland. Um, Again, kind of trying to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. I mean, he gives each of them what they think they want. And in the book, he appears in different guises. He appears in different uh, manifestations to each of the characters. Um, so, you know, again, it's someone kind of handing out, here's what you think you want. Here, I'm gonna, just going to keep you happy. Go away. You know, it uh, doesn't yes. really address their real needs. So, Jeez, um, Bomb was kind of uh, not real fun. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting theory. And he did, uh, Littlefield, when he wrote this article in 1964, did write that, that Bomb never really allowed the consistency of the allegory to take precedence over the entertainment. So mm -hmm. he's, Littlefield himself, who came up with this idea, uh, and saw these parallels is saying essentially that the, the parallels are there and he thinks the populism undercurrent is there, but it's still bomb wrote it as a story to entertain children. Mm -hmm. But look at all this other stuff that's in there. So he says, you know, not everything is an exact, you know, linkage to populism because bomb was first and foremost um, writing a children's story, but he says, the, you know, the relationships and the analogies are far too consistent to be coincidental. Well, I, I like Littlefield's idea. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty cool. I it's like more it fun. Um, I'm now going to give you your okay. Wizard of Oz Populous Codebreakers quiz, Ooh, Bob. Is this like Da Vinci Code? Exactly. I will name the character, and you give me Baum's 20th century equivalent. So okay. I'll give you the character, you give it. me the person he was trying to represent. Okay. okay, Scarecrow. Scarecrow was the wise but naive Western farmer. Okay, Tin Man. Uh, obvious one, it's the industrial workers, uh, kind of funny, it's probably the dehumanized industrial worker. No, no heart. heart. Yeah. Um, the cyclone. Yeah, it's uh, another one that Littlefield sees more as political revolution. I mean, it's just, yes. uh, you know, the cyclone kind of picks everything up and gets it in motion. You know, here's this, you know, populist movement that's going to, you know, take on the entrenched powers and whisk Dorothy away to her adventure. So the, she gets caught up in the revolution. Okay, and finally, my last one. I will be impressed if you can get this. Okay. What are the flying monkeys? <laughs> flying monkeys. You know, interestingly, while I think of an answer, now, uh, <laughs> flying monkeys have actually, be, uh, because of the because of the book and the movie, have really kind of become almost a, a standard convention for you know henchmen. <laughs> but um, god awful but, scary and, creatures. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid watching that movie, oh, hated the monkeys. But um, they're they're basically representing Pinkerton agents. These really? are now. These are the kind of the hired guns for big business that like are out it. there busting unions and you know 
taken after the little guy. And yeah, the flying monkeys are you know, essentially the, the Pinkertons working for the big business trust. Other experts have argued uh, Baum's book is not a political allegory. Yeah. You talked about this. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that they, they sort of think this is just an example of Americans trying to, trying to come up with this intellectual idea and trying to push it onto something that was published in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that vein, we're going to do the same thing. And uh, <laughs> we are going to uh, make up contemporary equivalents of Baum's characters. So I will okay. give you the character, okay. and then you give me the contemporary today equivalent of that character. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, we'll start. This isn't too loaded. Wicked Witch of the West, which I've, I suggested an answer, but she didn't want to go with uh, that No, one. I'm not touching this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, if... Any political figure, figure, any political figure I pick uh, is going to get me in a whole lot of trouble. If that's I go, right, that's if right. I go uh, Republican, or I go Democrat, or I go liberal, I go conservative. Uh, so I'm in trouble no matter who I pick. So I'm going to go with Paris Hilton. Is the Wicked Witch of the West? <laughs> yeah, I'll go with Why? that. Yeah. I like it. Uh, Winkies. Winkies. Okay, well, first, I'm not sure a lot of folks even know who the Winkies are. <laughs> they differ a little bit in the book and the movie, but uh, go with the movie. The Winkies are the Wicked Witch's guards. So the yo wee yo, yo. Oh, sorry, I had to finish that. Um, sorry. But I guess you know Winkies. I go with like any oppressed cubicle dweller. You know, people working in a cube farm that <laughs> like your you know, staff, Bob. yeah, would just you know love to douse their boss with water and watch him melt. <laughs> what is the model, modern equivalent to the Emerald City? Oh, the Emerald City. Well, you know, if you look at it as a shining city on a hill, uh, bringing. Hope and inspiration to all who approach. Uh, I'll go with Topeka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like it. All right, Bob. Well, uh, thanks for answering some questions sure. about the Wizard of Oz. Pets. My pleasure. Listener response. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about a comment from uh, one of our listeners from Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, this lady emailed in, and she was referencing episode 23, Bloody Benders. And here to help me uh, read this um, response is Nikayla Zimmerman, assistant registrar. And uh, this was the uh, segment I interviewed you on, right, about the Bloody Benders. That's right. So why don't you go ahead and uh, share what our listener had to say. She wrote in, I've been listening since the beginning when I found it on iTunes by searching for Kansas. The Bloody Benders episode was fun. Speaking of which, I have to mention this band, The Benders, who happen to be named after The Benders. I've seen them a number of times in Manhattan, Kansas at the Arts in the Park series. Yeah, so the band called The Benders. Uh, you you had heard about these guys before, right? No, not until she emailed no, us. No, but... The Benders, um, they show up from time to time in pop culture, right? Yes, they do. Yeah. What are some other places that we may have seen the Benders? Well, um, as our listener mentioned, the uh, Benders, the band, they are indeed named after the murderous family. (laughs) The Benders, Um, which were Kansas's first documented serial killers. Yes. And it's kind of interesting. If you go to their website, the Benders, the band, um, they are a 1960s, 70s cover band. So they sing a lot of that old kind of sugary pop music. And uh, apparently when they were looking for their name, they knew they wanted to be the something because that's what a lot of bands were in, like the Supremes, the Pips, you know, whatever. So they went to use that same formula and they ran across the Benders in an old newspaper when they were looking for a good name for their band. And they thought that'd be a great idea. And it's kind of a weird juxtaposition since they're this candy pop band and (laughs) Benders were serial killers. It seems a little strange. Okay, so um, in 1917, Albert Stroud wrote a poem entitled Kate Bender Dead Again, which is kind of a love ode to Kate Bender. (laughs) 
Um, in ni- the 1970s, um, Robert Adelman wrote a novel entitled The Bloody Benders, which I don't know if that's the beginning of when people started calling them The Bloody Benders, but that's the title of his book. Um, it's borderline pornographic. I remember reading it as a teenager, and I thought to myself, hmm, my mom probably wouldn't approve of this. Um, in 2003, Rob Zombie did a film called House of a Thousand Corpses. He was the director. And some people think that maybe that is based on the Benders because it's about you know a young couple who goes to the Midwest and then they end up in the house of a psychotic family and, well, a thousand corpses. You can kind of guess where it goes right. from there. So uh, Rob Zombie was possibly referencing the Bloody Benders, a territorial right. family in Kansas. Yeah, pretty interesting. Recently, the TV show Supernatural did an episode um, called The Benders, which um, loosely based on the story, kind of the idea of the descendants of the Benders, what they would be up to if you know they were still alive. And I felt that it was a little more creepy than the actual Benders themselves. Yeah, yeah. That episode, I watched that. That was uh, extraordinarily creepy. Yeah. All right, Nikayla. Well, thanks for telling us some of the uh, pop culture references to the Benders. Sure. Uh, now it's time to play Six Degrees of William Allen White. Um, and here to help me is uh, Rebecca Martin, the museum's assistant director, and Nikayla Zimmerman, uh, assistant registrar at the museum. So let's talk about last week's challenge, or last two weeks ago. Uh, the challenge was connect William Allen White to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And Rebecca, uh, I think you got this one figured out. What is the answer? Well, William Allen White and Frederick Funston were BFF, best friends forever. <laughs> oh my. And Funston was commander of the troops at the Presidio in San Francisco when the earthquake happened, and he led the local efforts to bring the fires under control and just uh, distribute supplies and food to people in San Francisco. And if you go to San Francisco today, you see tributes to Funston in the form of schools, and I think there's even a park named after him. So he's still a big deal in San Francisco and very good friends with William Allen White. Great. Okay, next week's challenge um, is connect William Allen White to the uh, CNN news anchor Anderson Cooper. And here to give us a clue is Nikayla Zimmerman. Okay, your clue for this week is a giant member of the Algonquin Roundtable. What were you supposed to do after giant? Wink, wink. Okay. <laughs> okay, so if you think you know the connection, just email me at podcasts at kshs.org. And that's podcast with an S. What's got everybody cheering? Sports. That's what. Check out the museum's latest exhibit, Game Faces, Kansans and Sport. Opening March 16, 2007. That concludes episode 24, Flying Monkeys. Come back in two weeks when I give you some tips on how to spruce up a meal using multi-purpose food. What is multi-purpose food? A granulated synthetic form of protein that was the staple of one Canton's Fallout Shelter food kit. Mmm, I love my multi-purpose food. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas State Historical Society. 